Coming up in this podcast, lithium deals, apartment projects, housing construction, Perdaman contracts, RCR Tomlinson and our special report on wealth creators. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and a welcome back to Dan Wilkie, uh, your first podcast after returning to Business News, Dan. Yeah, thanks Mark. It's uh, been an interesting transition back to the old desk. Yep, glad to have you back. Now, uh, let's start with uh, a huge deal struck by Mineral Resources and Albemarle this week, uh, signalling the strength of the lithium sector. Tell us about that deal. Yeah, this was, um, I found, a really exciting development in what's quite a dynamic market. I mean, there's been a lot written about a big wave of supply coming out of uh, Western Australia into the lithium market, but there's also a race going on in lithium conversion. Now, this deal was the result of a six-month sales process. Mineral Resources put up a half stake in its Wajina Lithium project and it's found a buy in Albemarle Corp, which is the world leader in lithium processing. They're a US company, um, they've got operations all over the world. They process a lot of lithium from America, uh, the United States and South America, and they're expanding outside, the, uh, outside of those jurisdictions as the race is going on. Now that deal... And they've also got other interests in WA, right? And, that's and, correct. And they're uh, building processing plant down in Kempton. Down in Kempton. They've yeah. just received uh, environmental approval for that this month as well. So that's about a $560 million spend. Yep. Uh, this deal, $1.6 billion for a half stake in the Wadjana mine and some processing facilities that are going to be built there. Uh, it's quite remarkable. The values of that mine at more than $3 billion. And if you have a look at the market cap of, of Minres at the start of the month, that was around 2.65. So it's a fantastic result for the Chris Ellison-led company. Yeah. Uh, the markets responded pretty strongly to that. Uh, shares were up uh, more than 25% yesterday. So it's a really positive development as, you know, the state government has been really on the front foot for, I guess, the last 12 months, making sure that it's not just digging the the ore out of the ground, sending it off to be converted elsewhere. It's value-adding, creating jobs and creating opportunities for, for West Australians. So having a look at the global context, um, uh, this is, as I said before, it's the latest development and a bit of a worldwide race to increase conversion capacity. So just taking it back a step, uh, to be used in batteries, you can't just dig the lithium up out of the ground, chuck it in a battery for it to work. It needs to be chemically treated and, and beneficiated to become lithium hydroxide or lithium carbonate. Yep. Uh, there's a big three in conversion, uh, which is Albemarle, uh, Tianchi Lithium, which is very active in WA as well, and Chile's SQM. Um, but there's also a second tier of processes in China, including Ganfeng Lithium, General Lithium, Shandong Ruifu, all of which they've got off-tech take deals with that new wave of miners, uh, which includes Pilbara Minerals, Altura Minings, and of course, Minerals. Mm-hmm. So last year... Just so remind me, when we talk about the processing, and, and I, now, the, the mineral, the lithium in WA is hard rock lithium. That's correct, yes. And it only has one step of processing to get to lithium... Carbonate. Carbonate. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of the other lithium around the world, especially in South America, is salt brine lithium. It's extracted from brine, well, basically a, it evaporates and they extract it from the brine. And it's a two-step so process. And the actual evaporation process is quite long as well. Yeah. So that's the advantage. I mean, it's... Slightly more costly for the hard rock, but it does have a much quicker time from where to go. Um, So last year, globally, around 240,000 tonnes of lithium carbonate equivalent, which includes lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide, was consumed globally, um, with about 60% of that going into the battery market. Uh, But by 2025, it's been estimated that supply is going to have to be around 800,000 to a million tonnes. So... 
in that context, battery manufacturers such as uh, Panasonic, which is one of the leaders, they're seeking diversified sources of supply. They can't just rely on getting enough supply out of China. Um, so, and also all the major car manufacturers are doing it as well. Uh, I think not a month goes by without another major car manufacturer announcing plans for electric vehicles. Yep. So, so that's what's behind all this, um, which I don't think it's um, super well understood because the take-up's not huge in Australia for electric cars, but globally it's really picking up, particularly in China. Um, so Albemarle's uh, investment in Wajina <laughs> follows, um, as, as we said, the environmental approval for the plant at Kemerton. Yep. Um, Tianchi is investing heavily, boosting conversion capacity in WA. They're, they're spending more than a billion constructing a plant in Quinana as well, and also expanding the capacity of the Greenbushes mine, Correct, which yeah. it owns in in a 50-50 joint venture yeah. with Albemarle. Yeah. Um, and SQM is also uh, advancing plans for a processing facility in a joint venture with Kidman Resources. Yes, okay, all right. So that's the probably lesser known one than, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's less advanced, but they've also responded to the call to have that, that, that diversified supply. So it's, it's really interesting. Um, and just on the, on the new energy vehicles, which includes hybrid cars um, as well as pure electric cars, um, Bloomberg's forecast electric vehicle sales to hit 24.4 million worldwide by 2030. Now, that's massive growth. Um, currently, um, it was last year, China, the world leader in take-up of electric cars, they have about 1.3 million on the roads, and that, yeah. that's double more than in, any other jurisdiction. So to go from 1.3 million in China up to 24.4 million worldwide in about 12 years, that is massive rapid growth, really exciting and dynamic. Yeah, okay. I mean, I've found, what I find fascinating here, Dan, is, you know, obviously WA is at the cusp of this, and we don't have the, um, the any sort of dominance of resources when it comes to lithium, but we do have dominance in production at the moment because we've got on with it and because we have a lot of the hard rock uh, lithium that's available, and we're just a jurisdiction that gets on with it, and now a lot of that processing development's happening here because... You know, these companies see us as a place to get things done. Another little side story to this is, uh, and co- is the interesting stuff from uh, Woodside during the during the week, announcing that it's uh, looking at hydrogen, and the opportunity is obviously take using the gas that they've got to produce hydrogen as a fuel. Now that's a different a different idea than having a battery. But it's uh, it's also a very advanced technology. You know, it's it's an advance and a, and a, and a better um, better for emissions and that sort of thing. And they're talking about doing it in boats and big sort of um, industrial processes as well. And then also during the week, Fortescue Metals came out with an announcement. I think they're doing a joint venture with uh, CSIRO to investigate using hydrogen in in their mining and transport and logistics areas. So it's pretty fascinating that this we're at the cusp of two uh, really important. Uh, developments in energy. So mm. yeah, nice. there's there's a real global transition. You know, the, the realization is that we can't continue using fossil fuels. We can't continue increasing greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah. And something has to be done. Exploring these alternatives is, is going to create, uh, I guess, lots of momentum in various industries. Yeah. No, totally. All right. Now, uh, Dan is getting back to one of your uh, signature areas, mm-hmm. property. Uh, there's been a couple of big depart- uh, apartment project announcements uh, from Blackburn and Pete. What do we know about them? So, yeah, um, Blackburn, obviously one of the uh, most prolific apartment developers in Perth. They've unveiled their vision for their newly acquired Subiaco Pavilion Market site. Now, I'm not sure many people need a, 
uh, recap on what's been going on at the uh, well, on what hasn't been going on at the pavilion market site for quite some time. There's been various proposals which have invariably gone mired in the approvals process. They've had to fight council who are really resisting high-rise development. Um, but I think looking at Subiaco, I think a lot of people can agree that something needs to be done there and something of scale. It is a very struggling suburb retail-wise. Um, so Blackburn, I think it was a few months ago that they purchased the site. Uh, they unveiled their new design, uh, what they were planning to do. Um, he's pivoted the project towards owner-occupiers rather than investors, which means larger dwellings, more two and three bedrooms rather than one and two, reduced the, the number of apartments, and really he's focused on putting some new life and new amenity. Mm-hmm. So it's got a massive retail component, lots of hospitality, and he's said that he's going to revive the markets. Yep. So that, that's huge for Subiaco. I mean, if you just stroll down Rockaby Road, it's it's quite interesting. It's like one shop opens, two shops close. Yeah. Uh, so there's been a lot of movement. And I think one of the stark, I guess, illustrations of the reality of Subiaco was sort of midway through last year, 7-Eleven pulled out of their tenancy on Rockaby Road. You know, if someone like 7-Eleven, the convenience store, with the sort of the backing that they've got, can't make it work there, yeah. it must be difficult, you know, it's... Look, I, I've talked at length about the difference between Subiaco, uh, which was 20, 25 years ago, it was the prime and, and almost the only main street shopping area that had really sort of survived and thrived as uh, people sort of turned away a little bit from shopping centres looking for something different. Lots of other main streets have made it since then, but Subiaco still f- it kind of got bought out and uh, it became occupied by kind of brand names that you could get in shopping centres. Whereas a place like Leadable went much more hospitality uh, and the difference between, the stark difference between mm. Leadable and Subiaco these days in terms of liveliness. Two different markets and Subi's a lot bigger. So, it, it, but I think the small bar wave, mm. just Subiaco actually lost out when that happened rather than a whole bunch of other districts that won. So, mm. you know. Yeah, because alongside Leaderville, as you so rightly point out, you know, you've got Beaufort Street and Mount Lawley, which is absolutely thriving some yeah. really interesting hospitality venues down there and the other one that's really come up in the last few years is Victoria Park you know is the, uh, that strip down Albany Highway there is just it's bustling it, it is it, it's, it a, is. it's a fun place and um, it'll be really interesting to see how the Subi Council responds uh, when the development application comes in because as I said before they've historically really resisted high-rise development and yep. the, the Blackburn proposal is 24 stories well I only hope that that the consideration of a good commercial project isn't lost in, I think Subi's got having a huge battle at the moment over um, the fact that the state government wants to see more density and Subiaco is mired in an internal fight about how to deal with that. Mm. And, um, you know, it may be that they just simply don't have the attention span to put to something important. So mm. we'll see. And it's interesting you mentioned actually the small bars because Subiaco, for several years after the legislation was introduced, they wouldn't allow any small bars within their boundaries. So no. I can't remember the last time I went out drinking that wasn't at a small bar. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure I'm, that's pretty typical. So, you know, it's easy to see why they've fallen behind a lot in that suburb. Totally. And now Pete also have announced a apartment project. This is something new for Pete? Yeah, so I thought this was quite interesting. So obviously the, the state's oldest land developer, very well known for their large land estates. They've... Um, built thousands and thousands of lots and housing lots over the years. Um, but they've 
in recent years, they've been looking to diversify their operations, and they've been including apartments and medium-density housing in the town centres of their estates. But I believe this is the first standalone apartment project for them. So they've been awarded a deal with um, from the state government to build a $45 million apartment project just over in East Perth on the outskirts of the CBD. Okay. Um, it's part of the state government's uh, housing affordability um, program. Yep. And um, it's, it's just, I find it really interesting that a company with such a history of land development has seen the change in the market and has pivoted itself to take advantage of, of what are the new trends. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, you know, uh, apartment projects need capital and Pete's not short of getting capital. It's got a good structure around that. Land itself, at the moment, Perth's not growing and there isn't that housing construction which just gobbles up land. And And in some ways... You know, with like you say, the, the the state government strategy with infill as well means that if you're going to be in the property market and they want X, can't remember what it was, forty five percent or whatever to occur in infill, then then you, you're missing out on half the market. So mm-hmm. fair enough. Now, uh, Dan, um, housing construction in WA remains in the doldrums as we just mentioned. Mm. Um, now we've got local confidence down in the market. We've got Royal Commission in a banking hitting banks' abilities to land. You've got APRA tightening credit regulations. So what's happening out there in the, on the ground? Not much. <laughs> so it's come back really, you know, it's been a few years since the peak. I think it was uh, more than 30,000 homes begun in 2014-15, which is a cyclical peak. Our forecasts from the HIA, which are updated this week, showed just 13,000 detached homes are going to be built in 2018-19 yeah, right. in WA. So, so, so let's get that right, 30,000 detached homes down to 13. That's correct, yeah. Right. So, uh, and sorry, in this financial year, you're Yes, talking, yeah, 2018, right. 19. Wow, okay. So, you know, that's a rapid and precipitous decline. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, the peak's never going to stay at the peak. No. But a more normal market is considered to be sort of around 18,000 to 20,000. Yes. That, that's what the home builders would, would consider equilibrium. Yep. Um, but 13,000, you know, there's going to be a lot doing it tough. Um, well, that's what's surprising because it, it's been pretty low, as you say, for several years. So, and you know, we've had all these green shoots and people feeling things are better, but clearly people are not confident enough yet to go in and, buy, and build a new house. No, the forecast is saying flat for, for the next couple of years. Um, it's going to be out to the HIA is saying t- 2020, 2021 is when it's going to resume growth, but it's not going to be very significant growth, about t- 2 to 3%. Yep. Um, so it just really shows that, you know, this crackdown on credit, which was really introduced to cool markets in Sydney and Melbourne where, you know, the price rises were, were getting pretty unsustainable. Yep. It was pretty hard to get, I mean, if you think it's hard to get on the property ladder in Perth, it's spare a thought for a potential first home buyer in Sydney. Yeah. But this sort of legislation or this, this sort of regulation change designed for one market is hurting another. Yeah. So is it time for the federal government to start thinking about having specific regulations for specific states depending on what time or what stage each market is in the cycle? That's a hard question. It's very difficult to manage. And then you are literally, I guess, uh, you know, you've got the the government interference going to a very high level then, Mm. picking and choosing which markets. And I can tell you what, the minute that it's government intervention, you'll have large organisations and large, uh, you know, both industry and companies lobbying to get the best for them and you end up with political outcomes rather than what's right. So mm. 
Not that I don't have a lot of sympathy for the housing sector. I think it's really, really tough out there, and uh, and it, that that flow-on effect is is very bad for the rest of the state because um, construction jobs are pretty important. Yeah, it's a massive contributor to the, to the state's economy. So it'll be interesting to see how that uh, plays out over the next few years. Indeed, Dan Fertilizer Group Herdeman had a major advancement on its Caratha Urea project this week. Yeah, so they've. Um line up a gas supply deal and sign a construction contractor. So yep. those big steps forward. Um, so Woodside, gas Woodside, supply. Woodside, gas supply, and the construction contractor, SNC Lavalin, is yep. the lead contractor. So they're going to start working on, uh, I guess, the detailed aspects of the design. Um, so it's a massive project. Uh, it's a $4 billion uh, fertiliser plant. Gee, uh, right. 2,000 jobs in construction, 200 ongoing. So for the diversification of Pilbara industry, this is a really big deal. And obviously that's really positive, but the approvals process could be tricky due to the location. It's located on the Burrup Peninsula, which has had a long legacy of proposals that never seem to go ahead. You're right, and I remember 15 years ago we we did a front page with about eight or ten projects on Mm. it, and I think only one of them went ahead after all that. So you're right, there's a history of things that haven't quite worked out. but I think the, the issue here is, you're right, over those 15 years, the focus has become more and more and more on the rock art mm. and the Burrup Peninsula and, and whether or not industry has an effect on it, right? That's, that's the query here, mm. right? Yeah, the state government said that industry and this rock art can, can coexist. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, how it goes and how sensitive they can be through, through this development because, as you said, you know, people have tried and they haven't been able to get over the line, but... Vickers Ramble, um, the, the leader of uh, Perdaman Industries, you know, he's been committed to this project for quite some time mm. um, uh, and, you know, his commitment can, cannot be understated. So, Yeah, he's an interesting guy and, I mean, he's had a really, he's been an interesting 10 years and he's had a couple of different things pushing because, remember, he was involved with doing some stuff down at Collie and mm. so he's, he's ended up in the gas business, which is fascinating. Um, oh, sorry, he was always going to be uh, in the urea business, mm. the fertiliser business, he's yep. just shifted mm. from coal to gas as Mm. a source. Mm. Um, Now, uh, Dan, RCR Tomlinson went into administration this week. Um, The company which heralded from Bunbury from recollection uh, struck trouble in August and even a big fundraising exercise has failed to stabilise things. Yeah, that's a bit of a worry. The company's so big and with the uh, I guess uh, annual revenue of around $2 billion uh, how they can't secure funding it sort of boggles the mind a little bit. You know, because it's it's one of the country's biggest engineering contractors, and they have more than three thousand employees. So this is going to be a real tricky one for the administrators to see if they can salvage this business, and it's going to have, I guess, a long-reaching impact. Um, they've got a lot of contracts in WA, more than thirty with the Water Corporation. Uh, they work with FMG, Woodside, Pilbara Minerals, among others. They were building a sixty million dollar solar plant out at Greenwich River. So. You know, this is going to have far-reaching impact, and it's going to, I think it's going to stretch out for quite some time. Yeah, well, I guess the, the, the truth is with these things is what's the value of that ongoing contract, and can it be ring-fenced from the drama that's going on? And in many cases, it can be. Then you go to the person who's, you know, given them the contract. Generally, in the contract terms, it says if, if the contractor goes into administration or any form of, um, you know, financial failure, that the contract can be null and void. So then does the administrator still have that contract as an asset, you know, so these are, because otherwise, you know, it's a, it's a difficult proposition. It all goes back from recollection, they were building some um, 
some uh, solar power plants on uh, up in Queensland, and they found that the the soil where they were building it was not as stable as they believed. Right. And so they ended up having to spend. I think on one contract they or might have been over two contracts they lost nearly sixty million bucks. Uh, you know these are. Big, big businesses, big contracts, but they're, they're, the margins in them aren't great when you start losing that kind of money uh, and you're going backwards and you're paying bills and you're not getting in enough money. So it's interesting. They raised $100 million back mm. in September, and the fact that that hasn't been enough is quite significant. Yeah, because uh, there was a $16.1 million loss last financial year for them. And as yeah. you said, those two big cost blowouts have just thrown the whole operation into disarray, I think. Yeah, well, I guess it, it creates doubt. Look, um, anyway... Uh, it's a formerly West Australian company, really. I think they're now based in Sydney. So, of course, uh, damaging. I, and you're right, they've got still got some links here. So, obviously, there's some you know jobs at risk and that mm. sort of thing. And there'll be lots of shareholders from WA as well. Uh, now, Dan's special report this week is on wealth creators. Uh, you're working on that one. Uh, what are some of the tidbits you can tease the listeners with? Yeah, we're still crunching the numbers um, and, and going through that, but uh, basically this is a deep dive into the shareholdings of the, the state's most wealthy um, directors and investors, and there's some really fascinating stories emerging. Um, there's been a couple of, I guess, golden handshake paydays. Um, the most prominent, Ron Sayers, who retired from Osdrill, uh, cashed in his shareholding for about $100 million. Uh, pretty handy uh, re- retirement package, that one. And mm. um, another one was Frank Tomasi from Southern Cross Electrical Engineering, Similar deal. He retired, sold his shares, earned more than thirty million. So you know, it's really, I guess, good reward for building up these businesses over a long period of time. Very successful businesses, and you know, they've decided to ride off into the sunset with a nice payday. And um, talking about nice paydays, there's a couple of gold miners: uh, Raleigh Finlayson from uh, Saracen Mineral Resources and Bill Beamont from Northern Star Resources. They've two of our first amongst equals, forty under yes. forty first amongst equals winners. Mm-hmm. So they've rewarded themselves for the jobs well done. Both of them remarkable growth stories over the past few years. Real bright spots in the in the gold sector. Uh, Raleigh sold 8.2 million worth of shares in July, and uh, Mr. Beamont sold 5.9 million in uh, between Christmas and New Year uh, last year. So really, you know, rewarding themselves for some remarkable growth in the gold sector. Yeah, and look, you know, I guess. Uh You've, you've got all your assets tied up in one company and as much as you know, you've got to be careful about when you sell out of the mm-hmm. company you're running, uh, you've also got to be allowed to take some of the winnings mm-hmm. and go and do some things with it, build some other yep. assets and the like. So good I mean, on both have, They've both retained significant stakes, so it's not like they've sold completely out. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> so absolutely. they'll probably be building more and wealth in the next few years. And they've probably still got options and performance shares that will vest at some point, so mm. you know they'll, they'll no doubt build their stakes back up again. Uh, well, Dan, that's great, and uh, I look forward to seeing that um, soon. Uh, now, the wealth creators list is largely derived, as Dan said, from our director's shareholding list, which we automatically update every day and display in our BNIQ part of the website. It's a subscriber asset uh, access only and is one of around 100 valuable lists that will help you understand the business scene in WA. That list has around 1,600 names on it with a cumulative total of all the shares they hold which, have been de- which they've declared as director's interests and it's updated overnight each night. Uh, if you'd like to see how it all works, call our subscription team and ask for a demonstration. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Beyer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.